the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. This question is, well, and just who is my neighbor? Which tells us that he thinks he's doing the first part of his response correctly. Now think about this. The first part is love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart soul, mind, and strength. He doesn't ask any questions about that. He doesn't want to justify that part because he thinks he's doing fine in that category. The category he's not so sure about is loving his neighbor as himself. So he wants to find, as a good lawyer does, a loophole, a technicality. Let's work on the definition here. How easy it is for us to justify our spiritual actions. We want to prove that we're righteous or better than someone else. But are we willing to give up our comfort? Today, Pastor Gary will remind you that greatness in God's eyes looks a lot different than greatness here on earth. You'll be reminded that your loving neighbor can sometimes mean sacrifice. Your time, your money, and your comfort may need to come second if God's calling you to truly invest in someone else's life. But it will be worth it. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke chapter 10 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So we left off here in the middle of chapter 10 of Luke, uh, where my Bible is subtitled here in verse 25, the parable of the good Samaritan. So uh, let me read verse 25 down through verse 37 so we get the whole context of the story, and then we'll come back and dig it out together. Verse 25 says, On one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So we have here uh, probably one of the most familiar stories in all of the Gospels. Interestingly, though, however familiar it is to us, the story of the Good Samaritan, it is only recorded in Luke's Gospel. Luke is the only one who records this story, so it is unique to the Gospel of Luke. And uh, in this story, Luke tells us that there is this expert in the law who comes to test Jesus. Now, there's some important information right there at the beginning. So those of you who like to take notes, an expert in the law, if you have a King James Bible, it says a lawyer. So, you know, miracles happen. Here's a lawyer in the Bible. Not a very good reflection of one, I might add, but it's nevertheless, here you have a lawyer in the Bible. But this isn't a lawyer in the sense that we would think of a lawyer, like, you know, in a legal sense, in a courtroom, in a government kind of, you know, a legal expert. This is an expert in the Mosaic law. This is an expert in the law of God. So this is not, you know, this is Roman Empire time during this period that Israel is under the Roman Empire, but this guy's not an expert in Roman law, in government. This guy's an expert in Mosaic law. So he's a Jew. And he's coming here to Jesus, and it tells us that he came to test Jesus. And so about this guy, we we learn immediately that he comes with a wrong motive. He's coming to test Jesus. The Greek word there is uh, ekparazo, and it means to poke. He is, you know, he's trying to taunt Jesus here a little bit. Remember, Jesus had his followers, and he also had his critics, By the way, you know, you might have some people who like you and you might have some people who dislike you. That's kind of life. But you get yourself out there in the public as Jesus did. And he's got some people who really like him and some people who are really critical of him. You know, the more that you are known, the more popularity you have, the more notoriety you have, the more you invite the praises and the criticisms of people. And I've shared this before, but I heard Alistair Begg once say that flattery is like fine perfume. Sniff it, don't drink it. All right? So some people are going to be flattering you. Oh, you're just wonderful. This is wonderful. And then you're going to have your criticism and people who are just going to be, you know, negative and always seeing the wrong in your life. And the reality is to keep a balanced perspective, you need to discount the high end and the low end of flattery and criticism because you're probably neither of those things. All the wonderful things people say about you, probably not all that, okay? They just don't know you, all right? They need to ask your spouse. And all the bad things that people say about you, probably not that either. So it's an important just principle. Discount the high end and the low end of flattery and criticism because you're probably somewhere more in the middle. Now, of course, here with Jesus, he's got the people who flatter him and follow him and the people who are critical and and trying to test him. And this is one of these guys. That same word test is found in Luke chapter 4 when it says that Satan came to tempt or test Jesus. It is the same Greek word. So this guy has ulterior motives. This guy is not interested in affirming Jesus or in following him. He is really interested in trying to prove that he knows more than Jesus and somehow perhaps to discredit him. So he's here to test him. You have a King James Bible that says tempt, but it means it in the sense of testing. And In addition to having a wrong motive, however, he asks a right question. And the right question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically pushes back. And in a sense, he's basically saying, well, you're the expert in the law. You know, what does God's law say? Why don't you tell me how you read it? Maybe you can answer your own question. 
And what the guy ends up doing is he summarizes the moral code of God's law. And he's going to combine a little bit of Deuteronomy 6 and a little bit of Leviticus 19. There's two verses, one verse from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and one verse from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And he combines those two things in his answer. Notice his answer again, verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6, 5. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19, 18. Now, what he's actually saying is not all that different from what Jesus said. Um, You don't need to turn there, but in Matthew 22... It says in verse 14, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, this is a different story, different person, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now listen to Jesus' answer, because it's very similar to what the guy said here. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that what this guy just said? And then Jesus adds, I'm in Matthew 22, verse 40, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, what Jesus was saying there in Matthew 22, which is really exactly what this guy's saying here in Luke chapter 10, is the whole summary of the scriptures. That if you could kind of pare down the whole Old Testament to two important verses, two statements that reflect the summary of the Old Testament, it would be Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's kind of the sum total of the law. And so this guy, being an expert in the law, gives that answer to his question. Remember his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, how do you read the law? And then he summarizes all of the law. You basically have to do this. You have to love God with everything, every fiber in your being, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you have to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, notice Jesus' answer. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. You've answered correctly. Now, think about that. The guy's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you had somebody come up to you off the street today and say to you, and you're a Christian, you know the Gospels, you know how to go to heaven, and they asked you, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What what do I need to do to go to heaven? I don't think you'd give this answer. I think you'd probably give a more evangelical gospel answer. Well, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is interesting that Jesus did not say that. Jesus here did not say, well, if you believe in me, you'll be saved. That's the answer to your question. Why did he encourage this guy to give the answer of the law and then affirm his answer of the law? I'll tell you why he did it. Because Paul writes to us in the epistles that the law was put in effect to lead us to Christ. Jesus was trying to elicit a response from this guy. How do you read the law? Tell me, you're the expert in the law. Well, you need to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, do that. If you go out and do all that, you'll be saved. And Jesus is trying to elicit the response of, 
How can I do that? Who here, I don't want to ask for a show of hands, really, because then we'll all make fun of you. Who here says, oh, yeah, with every fiber of my being, I love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength every day, every minute, every hour, and I love my neighbors myself. Yeah, that's me. Don't raise your hand, because then we'll have to call you out for lying, <laughs> or pride, or hypocrisy, or something. So what Jesus is saying here is he's putting the law back in this guy's face to make him realize how incapable he is of living up to this high and awesome standard. But there's a follow-up then. Because what Jesus is wanting to draw out of this guy, this guy doesn't respond that well. So we have a follow-up here in this story. And the follow-up now is he has another wrong motive because in response, it says that he wanted to justify himself. Notice that. After Jesus tells him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live, verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, not humble himself. He should have at that point, when he, when he realized this is the standard of the law, this is immense, this is incredible, wow, and he should have humbled himself at that point. Instead, he wants to justify himself. So then he's going to ask a follow-up question, and now we have not only wrong motive, but in the follow-up here, we also have a wrong question. And his question is, Well, and just who is my neighbor? Which tells us that he thinks he's doing the first part of his response correctly. Now think about this. The first part is love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength. He doesn't ask any questions about that. He doesn't want to justify that part because he thinks he's doing fine in that category. The category he's not so sure about is loving his neighbor as himself. So he wants to find, as a good lawyer does, a loophole, a technicality. Let's work on the definition here. What is technically neighbor? What does neighbor mean? (laughs) What is is, is? Remember that when Clinton was like, it depends what the definition of is, is. Really? (laughs) So that's what this guy is doing. He's like, well, it just depends. What is neighbor? So the first thing we see about him is he thinks he's loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He doesn't even have a question about that one. So, you know, good for him, but it's, uh, he a little overestimates his own uh, spirituality here. But he asks this technical question about who is my neighbor. And what he should have asked is, how can I do this? I'm not able. I need help. When he summarizes the law wonderfully, and Jesus says, correct, just go and do that. He should have humbled himself and said, This is a pretty tall order here. I don't know how to do this. How can I do this? I need help. And at that point, you see, then his heart would have been open and Jesus would have said, you're right. You can't do that because you need a savior. You are incapable of living up to every degree of the law. Again, Paul's saying the law was put in effect to lead us to Christ. The law was not intended as a system by itself of rules and regulations to make someone righteous. It was to open your heart to the reality that you can't live up to every single law. And thus, I need help. What do you need? I need a savior. And Jesus dies on the cross because the law, the moral code of God expresses the character and moral code of God, but it is incapable of saving us by ourselves because we can't live up to it. We need a savior. That's why we need grace. We are desperate for grace because we sin every day. Even as a Christian, listen, becoming a Christian doesn't mean you are now sinless. It means, hopefully, that you sin less. Hear that. But it doesn't mean you're sinless. 
So now there's this struggle still, the flesh wanting to do what the spirit doesn't want to do and vice versa. So when we sin, we need to cry out for forgiveness. We don't compensate for our sin by just obeying more and more rules and then being a better and better person and hope that'll compensate for our sinful state. That is a works-oriented religion, and every single religion is works-oriented except Christianity. Every single religion is about, I hope that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds at the end of my life so that I can go to heaven. The big difference in Christianity is it is the only world religion that is not oriented on works, except for the work of what Christ did by dying on the cross. As far as it pertains to us, it is based on grace. We are sinners. We are saved by grace through faith, and that the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, is what Ephesians 2 tells us. Even the faith to believe is a gift, is what that verse says. And so it is grace by which we are saved. It is God's grace. You know this, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. Jesus dies for us. We call upon a Savior. We need Jesus. Forgive me my sins. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be able to go to heaven. He forgives us. And that's how we're saved. This guy, stubborn as he was, did not humble himself, come to the place where he realized, I can't do all this, I need a savior. So instead, trying to justify himself, he asks a technicality question. Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus goes into this parable. He talks about how there was this man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and that is a 3,000-foot descent over 17 miles. You're going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, which is uh, in the Dead Sea area, and you're going to the lowest point on the earth. And so it's a drop of 3,000 feet in 17 miles. And along this route from Jerusalem to Jericho, and that ancient road has just been paved now. It's what we drive when we go to Israel. We drive back and forth on the same road. And the valleys off to the side, as you head up, it becomes a very mountainous region when you go up to Jerusalem. And the valley off to the side there of this road is called, to this day, the Valley of the Shadow of Death. It is the very valley that David was referring to in Psalm 23. And the reference to the Valley of the Shadow of Death is that when the Jews would make pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, it was called the Valley of the Shadow of Death because bandits, robbers, thieves, they knew this was the route when pilgrims come up to Jerusalem to worship for the feasts. And all along the road, they would attack you. They would rob you. And you had to be really guarded. You had to always be watching and careful. You would always travel in groups, never alone, for safety reasons. But, you know, picture that, that typology there as David talks about, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He's referring to an actual place. I know it has a broader meaning to us. He's referring to an actual place, the actual fear of walking this valley, of walking this road with that valley there and the potential for you to be robbed and for somebody to beat you up. And so it was a dangerous place to go. Well, this guy, probably a Jew, doesn't tell us that he is, but probably, he's probably finished one of the feasts, and he's coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and along the road, he gets attacked. He gets attacked by some robber, some bandit, and he gets left for dead, he gets robbed, left for dead on the side of the road. Jesus is talking about this as a parable. And then Jesus talks about three people who come along the road and see this guy on the side. First two guys that Jesus uses in the example, a Levite, rather a priest, in verse 31, and a Levite in verse 32. These are both supposed to be exemplary models of the right thing to do. You got a priest and you got a Levite, both of the priestly order. 
So these are supposed to be religious guys. These are church-going guys. They're supposed to do the right thing. And Jesus uses these two as the example. First, a priest comes by, takes a look at the guy, goes to the other side of the road, doesn't even want to get near him. Doesn't stop, doesn't help, nothing. Second guy comes along is a Levite. Same thing, sees him, goes to the other side of the road, doesn't even want to help him. Third guy comes along. Third guy is a Samaritan. Now circle that word in your Bible there in verse 33. Because Samaritans were disliked by Jews, typically. Obviously not by Jesus. And Samaritans typically disliked Jews. There was great animosity. There's a lot of prejudice between Samaritans and Jews. It goes all the way back to 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came, attacked Jerusalem, took some Jews as slaves to Assyria, and then they repatriatized the land of Israel by bringing Assyrians into Israel to bring the culture and influence of Assyria into the land because they took it as part of the Assyrian Empire in 722-723 B.C. And when the Assyrians came, some of them intermarried with the Jews, and they lived in the region of Samaria, and the descendants from the mixture of Assyrian blood and Jewish blood are people known as the Samaritans. So therefore, the Jews, who didn't have their blood mixed, the true-bred Jews, if you will, looked upon the Samaritans as half-breeds. That's the way they considered them, in a derogatory way. You guys don't belong to us. You've been intermingled with the Assyrians. You're not one of us. And the Samaritans, they had kind of some quirky things. They believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They believed that you worship not in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim. In Jesus' day, there were about six million Samaritans, and today there are about 600. Still are Samaritans in the region. They are a very close-knit group. They have strict regulations on how to uh, marry. Sorry, it was about one million in Jesus' day and only about 600 today. And they restricted their circle to a tight-knit group, and they would only marry from within, and as a result, it's, they basically started to dwindle out. That's why there's only about 600 a day. But great animosity between Jews and Samaritans. So check this out. So Jesus is, instead of using, you know, here's the priest and here's the Levite, supposed to be the model, and then Jesus brings a Samaritan into this story. So you have to hear it with the Jewish ears of this guy who's hearing this. Like, he, you know, inside, he's no doubt already thinking, oh, great, a Samaritan. You know, what's he going to do? And this becomes the hero in the story. This guy becomes the hero. Jesus goes on here and he talks about how as he traveled, he came where the man was and he saw him and took pity on him. Verse 34. And he went and he bandaged his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own Jeep. You know, he drives him to the Holiday Inn and, and then he takes care of him for the rest of the day. And then it says that he drops off two denarii. A denarii was a single day's wage. I mean, think about this guy here, this Samaritan. It's costing him something to do this. It's costing him his time because he's stopping to take care of this guy. It's costing him resources because he's using his oil and his wine, obviously as alcohol, so it's like an antiseptic, and he was using that to help with the healing, and oil would bring comfort to the wounds. And so he's using his own resources, and he's using his own money. Now, we'll come back to that in a minute, but notice how he's he's giving of himself to take care of this guy. And even after he takes care of this guy, leaves money with the front desk guy at the Holiday Inn, then he takes off, he says, I'll be back in a little bit, and, and if the guy's racked up any charges on room service, I'll pay him. So he's very willing and generous to do whatever he can to take care of this guy. This guy's a complete stranger to him. He just sees him on the side of the road. Oh, 
The Gospel of Luke takes a unique look at the life of Christ, from His birth to His ministry, His death and resurrection. Luke described Jesus as the Son of Man, one of his favorite ways to refer to Himself. Jesus was God in human form, showing all of us what it means to live a completely sinless life. There was no fault to be found in Him, yet Jesus was still nailed to a cross. But His death had purpose too. He stood in for you, taking the punishment your sin deserves. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death and the evil one. What an amazing Savior this Son of Man truly is. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus, or would you like someone to pray with you? If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. Find out service times and more information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and be able to download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know